Hey, welcome to the podcast of The Kelly Cutrera Show. It's Thursday, February the 4th. Do we have a problem with our nasal pharyngeal swab tests? At least how they're being administered. We'll talk about that. As well as why Spotify thinks that it will be able to interpret your mood and give you the perfect song to match it. That's coming up with Adam Oldfield, our tech expert. But first, our kids are going back to school. Monday, February 8th, all regions beyond Toronto, Peel, and York will be back in class if you want them to be. And on Tuesday, February 16th, the rest of the kids go back. Toronto, Peel, and York. Everybody will be back by the 15th or the 16th of, of February. The Monday, by the way, is a family day. And we have invited onto the show Harvey Bischoff, who is the president of the Ontario Secondary School Teacher Federation. Welcome to the show, Harvey. Good to have you on. Thanks, Kelly. How do you and your members feel about the fact that they're going back to school soon? Um, well, you know, I mean, they're all anxious to get back and be and be working with kids in a face-to-face environment, but they're deeply concerned about the fact that um, the minister has completely t- failed to make it clear on what basis, what metrics he's using to make the decision that it's safe to return, um, and that the things that he's talking about have simply not been implemented. So there really have been no enhanced safety measures, despite the number of times he makes that claim. So you're saying that the ventilation, the... Uh... The cleaning, it hasn't improved at all. The fact that they're using um, three-ply masks, they're making them available, and they're going to do rapid testing. You don't, you don't uh, feel that these are actually accessible or being put into play? Well, I mean, let's talk about the rapid testing. What, what the ministry is saying is they're making it available to public health units, but they're doing so without any direction whatsoever on how it's to be used. And we know, for example, in jurisdictions that are already open, like in Sudbury, virtually no schools have been... Uh, you know, the rapid testing hasn't been used. So they're not doing surveillance testing. And, in the, you know, with the ministry simply uh, devolving its responsibility down to local public health units, nobody's really, uh, nobody's really in charge. When it comes to ventilation, since the summer we've been pleading, put a standard in place. There are industry-wide, well-respected standards that talk about how to open public buildings during a pandemic. They simply refuse to implement a, a standard. Uh, so there's no evidence but ha- that... Can I just start- Stop you for a sec, Harvey, yep. just because I have to ask this question. How can you implement a standard uh, when you're dealing with buildings of different ages? Yeah, so there is something called the American Society of Heating, Refrigeration, and Air Conditioning Engineers. They've they've published standards for for what needs to be in place in order to make public buildings safe uh, during a pandemic, and it talks about air turnover and and uh, and uh, you know uh, filtration and and so forth. So there are standards. In fact, they're the very standards that were used when they opened the courts back in the summer. I think if it's good enough for for the courts, it should be good enough for our children in schools. All right. I want to play something that you might not be happy about on the morning show. Uh, Stephen Lecce, the Minister of Education, was on with um, Mike Stafford, and he had asked um, if unions like yourself are, you know, leaning on the pandemic as a bargaining tool, you know, with regard to classroom sizes. Have a listen. I think what was re- what's regrettable is there was a lot of this narrative in August. I think it instilled a lot of fear in a lot of parents' hearts. And then in September, after the skies falling narrative, They went into schools with a great level of apprehension, and parents saw firsthand that the cooperation, that the measures, that the actions of public health in collaboration with the school board were actually keeping your kids safe. The data speaks for themselves. Like, let's not be persuaded by rhetoric. All right. Well, I think you should have an opportunity to respond to that. What do you think, Harvey? 
Yeah, so so there's no rhetoric here. What we've done is um, appeal to, and, and not, not, nor is there any sky is falling um, claims. What we've said since the summer is we should, when the science is unsettled, and it is unsettled, and it's still unsettled about um, about safety in schools, you should invoke the precautionary principle that says you take every measure reasonable under the circumstances to provide for the health and safety of workers and therefore the students that are in those buildings as well and the families that they go home to. That's what we've said. Um, the minister cannot point to science that proves that schools are safe, it is still very unsettled. And there's a wide divergence of opinions, not not between me and the minister, but between experts, epidemiologists, public health uh, experts. That's that's where uh, the divergence of opinion is. And that's what needs to be taken into account um, rather than the political decision making that we've we've seen from this ministry. We know from from documents that were released from the ministry under a, an FOI request a couple of weeks ago, they discussed the medical advice and they discarded the medical advice based on their own, uh, you know, political uh, decision making. Okay, but Harvey, you know, we had a, a letter from pediatric specialists that are saying that it's important for kids to go back. Shouldn't we be listening to those experts? Because every expert is going to have a different jumping off point. But these are people that are well-versed in the area of um, wellness when it comes to, you know, school-age kids? No, that's a really important question, and we agree 100% it's important to get kids back, and it should be a priority to get kids back into face-to-face learning where they're supported by education workers and teachers, and that's how they do best academically and, and socially, and we agree. But if you're going to make that a priority, let's follow the advice that it came out as early as July from Sick Kids. They said, reduce the number of, of students in a class as the as the, the priority action to take. And then okay, there's a whole and- series of others, including asymptomatic testing that they're recommending that simply haven't been put in place. But, um, you know, in fairness to Le- uh, Mr. Lecce, he's saying that those symptomatic tests are going to be available. So it's up to, you know, the boards to use them. But, um, he, you know, with regard to the numbers of students in class, he had answered that. And he said, you know, we've got our high school kids down to 15 in a class and that they're implementing a whole suite of measures, you know, including ventilation and cleaning and social distancing to get the kids back to to school safely. And one of the other things he mentioned was the fact that they are going to be hiring some student teachers to teach. Do you have any concerns about the student teachers? Well, I, you know, I, I'll come to that in a second, but the, not all high school students are anywhere near, uh, all, all high school classes are anywhere near 15. And in fact, in all the non-designated boards, we have classes of 30 and 35 students. In the elementary schools, uh, classes are full size. So that claim that he's making is, has, has a, a, you know, a sliver of truth to it, but it's far from uh, system-wide. I do have concern uh, about, about um Putting putting um, you know uh, students uh, who are still in the midst of their of their learning about about teaching into classrooms uh, unsupervised. I have concerns for them. I think it's, you, you were know, a teacher. Could you have done it? I was I was a teacher after I'd completed my schooling and my accreditation. Yeah, and even if then, you were the a student, couple, the first you... couple of years are are pretty are pretty challenging. All right. So you're speaking from experience. You think it's it's maybe a little over their heads. You, you need some supervision. All right. I want to ask and, and you one also more. also unnecessary because we're not seeing the the the, uh, the shortages that he's claiming. And I, I, you know, within the last few days, I've talked to occasional teachers in a number of jurisdictions. They're they're uh, having insufficient work, not too much. 
Mm. I'm going to ask you one question before I let you go, because we're getting to the end of the show, and I think it's an important one. March break. Do you uh, think that March break should be paused? Maybe not, like, you know, just paused until a later date. Do we need to cancel March break this this year, you know, where it normally falls? I've seen no medical evidence whatsoever to support that idea. I know anecdotally that students, the families who are supporting them at home uh, are exhausted. And I know for a fact that educators are. uh, So if there's some value in this, somebody point me to it, but I haven't seen it yet. So your members would not support March break being canceled this year? No, no. Overwhelmingly, they would say that that the break would be good for everyone. All right, Harvey, I want to thank you very much for your time. As always, uh, nice having you on the program and stay safe. Yeah, thanks, Kelly. Same to you. Research is suggesting that COVID-19 testing techniques across Canada may not be up to par. Dr. Lee Sowerby is Associate Professor in the Department of Head and Neck Surgery at Western University, and he joins the show. Welcome, doctor. Thanks so much for having me on. Uh, It sounds like the swab you had probably was deep enough. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah, I felt it. All right. I felt it. I think I uh, swore at the guy, actually, and then I apologized quickly. Uh, This has to do with those uh, nasopharyngeal swab tests and, and has less to do with the accuracy of the test itself and more to do with how it's administered, correct? Well, they are related to some degree. So what we looked at with our research was we basically reviewed all of the guidelines uh, produced by the provincial public health authorities to give people instructions on how to perform the nasopharyngeal swab. As you can appreciate, for us to be doing, you know, 50,000 tests a day in Ontario, there's a lot of people now who are doing nasopharyngeal swabs that weren't doing these before the pandemic and also really don't have a lot of familiarity or comfort with nasal anatomy. Uh, What we found is that only four of the 13 provinces and territories had instructions that would actually reach the mucosa of the nasopharyngeal wall. Now, the question is, does it really matter? And for most patients, it doesn't, right? For symptomatic patients, even the anterior nasal swabs, so the swabs that are being done in pharmacy, is good enough to get a sample. When we compare those anterior nasal swabs to the nasopharyngeal swab itself, the sensitivity is about 90%. When we compare a mid-nasal swab to the nasopharyngeal swab, the sensitivity is about 95%. So, so long as that swab is going into your nose, for most people and most of the time, that's going to be fine. And I'll give you an example. So if we have a one or 2% positivity rate in the cases that we're seeing, the chance of having a false negative for every thousand tests is about one when we have those low instances. But if we get in a situation like we were uh, in Brampton and in some parts of Toronto where the case positivity rate was approaching 20%, it becomes a much bigger problem. And the reason why is that if our case positivity rates are so high, that mid-nasal swab will result in 10 false negatives per 1,000 swabs, Mm -hmm. and that anterior nasal swab will result in 22 false negatives per 1,000 swabs. So if we're doing 5,000 swabs in Toronto you know, a day, and we're having positivity rates that are high, that can be a hundred false negatives that are going out with a result saying you don't have COVID when in fact they do. What alerted you to the inconsistency? Uh, well, I'm an ear, nose and throat surgeon and I specialize in rhinology, which is surgery in the nose. And so I spend my time in there all the time. <laughs> and Charming. Part of, yeah, part of my job is to look in people's noses with a telescope. And so I had some patients tell me, oh, you know, that felt very different than when I had a swab done, which got us looking at it, but then also reviewing um, other provinces to see if there was any different recommendations once we saw what Ontario was recommending. 
Okay, and is Ontario recommending that we're, their recommendations, are they not going in far enough? So Ontario's recommendations from the Public Health Ontario state that it should go um, approximately to the level the, of the middle part of the inferior turbinate or half the distance from the tip of the nose to the ear. And that's not deep enough to reach the nasopharynx. So what they're in effect performing is a mid-nasal swab, but we're calling it a nasopharyngeal swab. Now, I've you know, anecdotally heard from a number of people who are working there that the instructions they're actually receiving at the assessment centers are different. They're to go further until they reach resistance. Yeah. But the formal Oh, yeah, health- they do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the formal public health guidelines are to go basically that half distance. Right. Otherwise, you're just swirling. Like, if you don't go all the way to the back and hit the the nasal pharynx, basically, you're just swirling it around in an empty space, that cavity of the throat, the top of the throat, right? Exactly. And so we, we put a little YouTube video up about that, of what the swab looks like um, when it's at four centimeters or halfway through the nose, and then what it looks like when it's at seven centimeters in the nose, and then at nine centimeters when it's actually touching the posterior nasopharyngeal wall. And you can see at seven centimeters, the swab literally is spinning in air. Okay, so y- this YouTube video that you put together, and I watched it, by the way, uh, you you do have a really interesting job. Are they? <laughs> oh, I mean that uh, because of the I think I'm fascinated by anatomy, and I wondered if an, you ever run into a situation where you you kind of meet resistance, and you're like, there's not supposed to be resistance here. That people are not all made the same. Although you know, there seems to be you know uh, some uniformity, but I would imagine there's some situations where their physiology is slightly different. But um, this YouTube video. You're sending it to who? Is it to the public health units to show them what exactly you're seeing and how they could do their tests better? No, it's more just out there just for general public awareness. The New England Journal of Medicine has published a great online uh, tutorial and review with a video uh, on instructions on how to do the nasopharyngeal swab. We've worked with a company in uh, Kitchener-Waterloo to actually develop uh, a nasopharyngeal uh, swab task simulator. So it allows people who are unfamiliar with the anatomy to basically hold in their hands to see what the anatomy of the nose looks like, and then also to see how deep they need to go to reach the posterior nasopharyngeal wall. Within that model, we've actually also put in a septal deviation, so that's a bend in the middle part of the nose. And so they can also feel what it feels like to to meet resistance if somebody has that uh, anatomical abnormality, and then they they just basically need to know to go on the other side to be able to reach the the nasopharynx. Wow! Uh, so I I love this because we you know we do use PCR training dolls. We we have used different models to teach people how to you know uh, do things correctly. So this only makes sense. Exactly. Yeah. No. It's a, it's a great. The company's uh, called the Head Simulations. They've done a great job with. Um, you know, taking this idea, 3D printing the models so that it's very accurate anatomy. It's actually clear plastic, so you can see what the internal nasal anatomy looks like, and you can see where your swab's traveling. You know, one of the misconceptions that I think a lot of people have is that our, our nose is actually heads up, but the reality is your nasal cavity is straight back. So if you think about where the top part of your mouth is, just above the palate, or where that, the uvula little floppy thing in the back of your throat, just above that is your nasopharynx. So in order to get that, you have to go straight back parallel to the palate, not up. And it's when you go up that people have a lot of pain. Okay, but what's what's up? Is it just wasted space? What's the? Uh, <laughs> I know we're getting into physiology here, but I'm interested. Yeah, well, it's a narrow space. Uh, it's the area where your sense of self smell is, but it's also the area where, you, where um, there's a little very thin bone that separates your brain uh, from your nose. And so we want to stay away from there if we can. Yeah, I think the guy might have hit my brain when he was doing this show, but I can't be, 
Can't be certain. Uh, thank you so much for, for pointing this out. Basically, this is something to be aware of, but it's not something to get nervous about. Exactly. And like, like I was saying, so, you know, with, when our case positivity rates are low, it doesn't matter. And we need to be weighing the pros and cons of doing a full nasopharyngeal swab versus the anterior nasal swabs. And that's what public health did. That's why we can go into pharmacy and have these anterior nasal swabs done. They're quick, they're easy, there's minimal pain associated with them, and they do a good job of screening when our case prevalences are low. The problem, really, what we're trying to raise awareness of is that if these variants start taking hold, then we may need to reconsider using those because of the risk of having these false, false negatives out in the community. You know, for, when people have had that you know, test result come back that says you're, you're negative, it's almost like a, you know, this is like you get a jail free card, you know, you're good for a couple days. And if people are having that false sense of security, that's really when we're worried we could see more um, potential transmission events. Dr. Sowerby, it's been a sincere pleasure talking to you today. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for having me. Here we are, uh, Thursday, February the 4th, and we're joined now by Adam Oldfield, our 640 Toronto tech expert. Adam, welcome back to the show. Hey, thank you, Kelly. Appreciate you having me. I always love having you on the show. But I want to talk about something that was uh, released yesterday. It was a report from our um, uh, privacy watchdogs here in Canada. They say the U.S. firm Clearview's AI facial recognition technology resulted in mass surveillance of Canadians and in doing so violated federal and provincial laws governing personal information. Uh, This was following a probe that was launched into the practices of the company. Could you get us up to speed, maybe starting at the beginning, how did Clearview AI become the focus of the probe by the federal uh, privacy commissioner in the first place? Absolutely. So first of all, let's go back to when how Clearview AI works. It's a, it's a company that was established that built a software that scrapes the internet of photos, and it uses artificial intelligence with facial recognition that can pull out millions, billions of photos, trillions of photos that people have posted on Google, on Facebook, through uh, Microsoft, on Bing, and it literally harvests these photos, uses its algorithm, and it takes these images of multiple photos of of people that people, again, these are photos we upload, like when you're doing a selfie or you've you've uploaded publicly on Facebook, Instagram. And what it did was it created this massive database. This database now has uh, not necessarily your name, it wouldn't know it's Kelly, but it would say this photo is identified as a person that uh, maybe would be linked with your name uh, should you or if you uploaded your profile. So what they did was they now have this massive hard drive full of billions of people's faces and information. Then they started to go to all of the uh, police authorities across the United States and Canada, and they were more or less saying, hey, if you're looking for video surveillance or photo surveillance of individuals that maybe uh, committed a crime, our database will be able to match your photo photo to synchronize with the billions of photos that we've been able to harvest. Now, uh, the whole issue with obviously what they did in Canada was that they claimed that they didn't do anything wrong because these photos are publicly posted. Uh, These images are not necessarily in violation of any copyright, but no one got permission. Nobody got permission that they were using this data that's been uploaded and, and selling it to the RCMP as an example. Um, and, you know, what's really interesting is I'm, I'm actually applauding our Canadian government, uh, Kelly, because, you know, the fact that they're stepping up is critical because in February last year, this same Clearview AI got a data breach. And this right. data breach 
was able to steal this information. They were able to steal the customer, the clients, all the municipal and, and uh, federal authorities. They were able to steal access to the database they had available. And the cities that they were able to steal from were Toronto, Atlanta, and Florida. So this has got two sides of it. One, what they're doing is unconstitutional, uh, scanning photos and otherwise, then selling it to the police authorities. Then second of all, this data was breached a year ago. So it's not even secure. Okay, so I suppose the silver lining in the story is they'd only have the most flattering photos that you posted. <laughs> and most of the time, it doesn't look like you in the first place. So. But, I guess that's some way to look at it. Yeah, exactly. If you got your tongue hanging out or otherwise, yeah, it's not going to be necessarily great photo to work with. So what now? Is there ramifications that uh, that we're looking at pursuing? Yeah, you know, this is something that I know as well. Google, Facebook, and Microsoft uh, have all issued a cease and desist order to Clearview AI. Um, and the next phase of this with regards to where does it go from here is that it almost amplifies that that um, regulatory body that our Canadian government is in the process of trying to institute. And Facebook is open to this, uh, you know, new regulatory body that they're about to enforce. But what are those rules? look like this is probably going to be one of those case studies that is going to be applied when they're coming up with that new regulation that that process of any kind of uh software company uh anything that uses data that's been publicly posted online and uh they're probably going to use that as a as a statement of example not what not to do as a business that's going to be uh accessing data or information online on the internet in canada Okay, well, we know that all of these apps are collecting data on us. It's just, it's the way it is. I want to turn our attention here to Spotify. They've been granted a patent for technology that analyzes your voice so that it can suggest songs. Can you maybe elaborate on this technology, what it's planning to do? Sure, absolutely. So similar to how Alexa listens in our Google Home or, or Siri is listening all the time, and conspiracy theories say that uh, Facebook as well, this little feature within the app of, of uh, Spotify is going to be able to uh, enhance the, uh, the listening pleasure. So as an example, you just broke up, you're in the middle of a divorce, uh, your parents passed away, you're in an emotional state, uh, Shopify will be able to address that emotional voice and it will be able to suggest a playlist for you. Um, so if you're at, depending on the mood. So the patent, what it's doing is it's using the voice recognition. So when we give permission to our phone and we're saying, yes, you can listen to my microphone. Of course you need the microphone. Why wouldn't you if I need to tell you to play a song? When you're giving those permissions to the app, you've actually given it now full access to listen to your emotions. So it's a patent that actually measures emotions. It also recognizes your voice and has a filter piece that can filter out, say you're on a subway or you're on public transit, uh, you're on a plane, uh, should internet we ever be on a plane again. But in this process, it's gonna be able to filter out background noise, know your voice, know your tone. And uh, truthfully, what they're doing is they're trying to be what Google, Facebook, and all the other big companies are, and that is have a data source that makes their company shares go up because that's really the value is data. Interesting. So this is Spotify, just to clarify, not Shopify. We're talking about Spotify. So this new technology, if I'm sad, it would listen to my voice, analyze my voice and figure out what music I want to listen to. The last thing I'm looking for is a playlist of Jeff Buckley and Leonard Cohen when I'm sad, though. 
Like, will it well, work in the reverse? Is it possible that then it's going to give me like all the happiest songs written by uh, people that I normally listen to? Do we know? Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think what it's doing is, it's, again, this patent doesn't exist yet. It's a patent that they're trying to uh, protect themselves with the processes of which they're going to be developing. But to answer your question, the way it would work is, uh, you know, when you use your voice controls on, on Spotify, you would be able to say, Spotify, play a sad song. And it would instantly know from your music likes, your voice, your catalog of what you listened to when you were sad three years ago, your favorite artists, and it would compile that music list and give you that, that sort of, um, that warm, comforting, weighted blanket of music that you could be able to go, oh, thank you so much. I, I really appreciate listening to this. So, you know, what we're hearing here is, think of it as your best friend putting together a mixtape of all your favorite songs. And when that emotion hits, you're able to play, I'm speaking to the older generation here, obviously. Yeah, Kelly, yeah but you're speaking you're my able- language. <laughs> you'll be able to put that music tape together and you'll be able to go, oh my God, these are all my favorite songs when I'm sad. That's yeah, but you know what? what? Here's, here's where you're going to poke a hole in their whole idea here and their technology of making music to suit our moods. Everybody who's ever had a mixtape knows there's at least one dud and it is a, it's a dud that is like, it, it lands just with a massive thud in that mixtape. It just does not belong. So this is, I understand, making uh, it's being positioned to make our lives easier, right? So that we Absolutely. don't have to go through, apparently, this long, tedious form of uh, your age, your gender. Tell us your favorite bands. You know, they're just going to be able to, you know, assess what our favorite bands are and what we want. I, I, Adam, is it too much to be asked to be notified about this? And given the option to opt out, because I frankly don't need Spotify. Absolutely. I, I mean, those features are available for any of these apps that you that you're working with. You can actually opt out. In fact, I was having this conversation the other day of, you know, you don't need Google to know who you are and what you're ordering, except when you want a pizza and you search it and you end up something in Seattle and uh, you're downtown Toronto, it's not really going to do you much good. In the same case where, yes, you can turn these features off. These elements of which you have within your phone are obviously for your benefit and your convenience and obviously for the company's benefit, which I mentioned earlier, is the bottom line profit. However, that stated, there are alternatives out there that you can shut these these features um, that are very convenient for you off. Um, so it's just in your settings. You have to go through and literally between every app. It's not a yeah. universal turn it all off. You have to go to every program and turn those settings off, whether it's Apple or it's Android. I always love having you on the show. Thanks so much for joining us today, Adam. Thanks, Kelly. Have a great day. Hey, thanks for tuning into the podcast. If you liked what you heard here, keep in mind, it's only really a fraction of what we do live on air on a daily basis, Monday through Friday between 9 and noon on 640 Toronto. If you want to tune into us, you can get us on the radio or get us online at 640toronto.com. Talk to you later.